welcome to Comfortable Place on the Couch Series 2, a regularly scheduled podcast where three Canadians talk about a band full of Australians and a New Zealander bassist to Midnight Oil fans all around this Arctic world. My name is Darren Folds, and in the coming months, well, it seems like we're taking a hiatus from B-sides, covers, and demos, and instead, we're talking to a producer or two of the band and the albums that we all love so much. Joining me each episode is my best friend and fellow Midnight Oil enthusiast, Robin Harbron, and today we have a new guest joining us on the couch, the excellent Warren Livesey. Welcome to the couch. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's good to um, be here. Let me introduce Warren to our listeners. Warren, of course, is the producer of what was named the best Australian album of all time, according to a book, The 100 Best Australian Albums, mm-hmm. uh, Diesel and Dust. He also produced a few other albums that our listeners might be familiar with, Blue Sky Mining, Redneck Wonderland, and Capricornia. In addition... Warren has worked with the likes of Canada's own Matthew Good and 5440, Thomas Dolby, I believe, Sinead O'Connor, Icehouse, and a couple bands that often get mentioned on this podcast, The Ghostwriters and Martha and the Muffins. Indeed. So Warren, we're so excited to have you to talk to us about Diesel and Dust today. All right. Now, we learned just a day or two ago of the October release of... The Oil's new mini album, The Macarata Project. And if we didn't yeah. at least mention that when we're talking with you today, <laughs> um, our listeners would sure make us know that we forgot that. Yes. I know we're not talking about The Macarata Project or the, the new album that's coming out later on, but yeah, we're all really excited to hear new Oil's material later this week. Yeah. Work that you've... Uh, been working on I, I bet you're excited too yeah i am obviously the the uh release schedules got um put back substantially by the by the pandemic but uh yeah the end of last year i was in australia working with the guys and then spent the first part of this year mixing so it was all it's all kind of ready to go and as you will have seen yeah they are putting the first single out uh, from the EP, from the mini album, I think they like to call it, uh, the Macaras Project. So that song's called Gadigal Land. I think it comes out this Friday. And then yeah. the, and if you're saying that October is the official release, you know more than I do. <laughs> I think it, I think it is supposed okay. to be around <laughs> about then, but these plans have been, uh, you know, have been changing rapidly just because of, of course it, it's, uh, you know, it's trying to figure out, everybody's trying to get their ducks in a row after the pandemic and, um, you know, trying to, trying to find a good release spot and all that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, excited for it to come out, for sure. So are we. Warren, how did you get into music production as a career? Did you go to school? Were you self-taught? No, I uh, I didn't go to school uh, for uh, production. I was a musician growing up. My, dad, my dad's a musician, a jazz musician, so I grew up around music going to his gigs that he would play um and all that stuff and obviously loved uh music myself 
And I had quite quite an eclectic sort of um, experience of music because my dad, as I say, was you know a big jazz fan and also classical music, and so I would get all of that from him. And then my my peers at school sort of divided into two camps. One one camp were very much into kind of like the you know, the R and B sort of Motown sound at the time. We're talking you know seventies early to mid seventies when I was a teenager. So you had the kind of soul crowd, and then you kind of had the heavy rock crowd, <laughs> who were all into like mm-hmm. you know Zeppelin and Deep Purple. And I kind of liked both of those. I like both of those sort of uh, uh, musical genres. So, yeah, so I had just all of this different music coming at me. And, uh, yeah, I guess at that point I always imagined myself being a, a musician in a band. But as soon as I started to experience recording studios, uh, you know, as a player, um, it just it, it just felt like home. It was just almost instantaneous, even though I probably wouldn't have at that point been able to put the the name to it i just knew that recording studios was was where i wanted to spend my creative time and that i preferred that to the sort of playing live aspect of 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 being in a group being a musician um i don't dislike playing live but mm. it just felt that that sort of opportunity i guess uh, of getting things absolutely right was like the thing that really a- appealed to me, you know, about recording. Was that in England? Uh, yeah, that, that you were that you first got started. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I mean, I, I came out of high school uh, uh, about seventy seven. You know, I lived in a provincial town and um, and was playing in bands there. And then when I went to university, I went to university in London. Not so much because that was the best course, but just because I wanted to be in London, which was the centre of the musical world, as far as I could determine, you know, from a from from where I sat at that moment in time. So, yeah, I was straight into London, and then and really, and I did I didn't even finish university. I was just so excited to be in London and playing music, and and as I you know, gained more and more experience as a player getting into studios, I then, you know, started to make a very sort of active choice to try and make that my that that my uh, career, you know, being a producer and, and uh, engineer and, um, you know, and doing all things studio. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, let's fast forward to your first exposure to Midnight Oil. How did you meet the band and, and what led to working with them on Diesel and Dust? Well, you know, um, we are, of course, talking pre-internet days. Um, so, in fact, I didn't actually meet them in person until I flew out there to start recording with them. But oh, really? uh, wow. I guess my understanding was that they were aware of my production for a while but I'd not done anything particularly mainstream until I did uh, The Others Infected record, which came out in 86. Mm-hmm. And the the records that I was making before that were one particular artist, a guy called Fetus, a guy called Jim Thurwell, and, and that was very industrial sort of hardcore music. And I, my understanding is 
that the oils knew those records and thought that the production was very interesting. Um, obviously, they didn't want to be an industrial band themselves, but I think they could possibly <laughs> see uh, through that to sort of see that the pro- production was was um, something that they admired. Yeah, but that that on its own wasn't enough to persuade them that I was their guy. Um, but then I think when the the infected came out, um, they really liked that record, and um, that was the thing that cemented them to uh, to choose me. And also, they had, you know, you've been speaking to Nick. Um, so Nick Lawney produced the yep. two records before that, and my understanding was that the band and Nick had sort of mutually agreed that, you know, possibly uh, not doing a third record with the same team might be a good idea for everybody concerned. So so mm-hmm. they were already sort of deciding to uh, find a, a new producer. And, um, yeah, so I guess that, that, was, that was sort of the long and short of it, really. Right on. Did you get a chance to see the Oils play live before you started no, uh, no, recording? No, I didn't. Them? No. Um, no. So yeah, I guess actually. So yeah, the second part of that story was that. So they reached out to my management um, of the time, and it was the way everything was done those days was cassettes of uh, demos so the first thing i knew was i i knew i knew of the band's name and i'd heard i'd heard mm-hmm. um 1098 and red sales i had those records mm-hmm. and um and obviously as i said i know nick so i knew a bit about them from nick so they they approached they sent a, a batch of demos which were all rehearsal recordings you know the band playing all together uh mm-hmm. you know in a rehearsal space getting the songs down and um i don't remember exactly but probably that first batch of demos maybe had six seven songs on or something like that so uh, you know my response to that was very very interested um you know management were obviously communicating back and forwards and then I think I ended up having a conversation with some of the guys, not all of them. I think it was probably Jim and Rob, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then I think we just sort of like it was sort of dipping dipping our toes into the water, feeling each other out. But also, you know, they weren't quite there with the number of songs. So we had... You know, we had a first batch of demos, six or so songs. You know, you're kind of thinking, okay, maybe three of these are going to make the record. And then over a period of about six months, I'd say, with a bit of back and forth, all by telephone, you know, then them writing more, going back into a rehearsal space, recording more songs. Um, So there was quite a sort of long time of them writing more and more songs. And I think probably one of the first things I said to the guys, and I think it was pretty much the way that they were thinking as well, was, you know, let's make this record a real songs-based record. Let's make it like the strongest (laughs) possible material. You know, no doubt about the fact that the band were an exceptional, energetic, you know, live group of people, you know, and just, just 
I mean, I still think they're they're one of the best sounding live acts in the world. I mean, there's, there's you know, it's mm. just the energy that they they have and the connection that they have together was uh, undoubted. Even though I hadn't actually heard them play live myself at that point, but you know, I was hearing it from those previous records and. So no doubt about the fact that you know musicianship wise and and vibe wise they were right up my alley to work with, but just really really wanting the songs to be just the best that they could possibly write at that time. So that was quite a that was quite a slow process of those cassettes coming back and forwards, and then I actually believe that the last batch of demos that they sent me would have had Beds of Burning on it, actually. So that song was like mm -hmm. one of the last songs that they wrote. And actually the demo of that song doesn't have any verses. <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's no singing in the verses. It's just the riff going round and round and round. And then the chorus and the B chorus were recorded and were ostensibly exactly the same, you know, writing lyrically and melodies as... as uh, as was on the final version. Yeah. Yeah, so that was like... And then plus a couple of others that were on that last batch of demos were sort of like the ones that were just like, okay, right, now we've got... Now we've got our full album worth of great songs. And then it was pretty quick, actually, after that point that we um, were sort of rushed, you know, organising flights and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was finishing up a project... Uh, that I was doing at the time with Julian Cope, an album called St. Julian. So I remember, remember actually, we um, it was pretty crazy, but we uh, we finished the album, I think, I just finished probably about three in the morning uh, on their last mix of that record. And then I flew to Australia with my family 10 a.m. the next day. <laughs> so it was like... Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it was February. Uh, it was a particularly cold winter in the UK. There was all these sort of icicles hanging from our the side of our, you know, like the drain pipes and the and the guttering from the house. <laughs> yeah, my wife had to get everything together uh, to for us to fly. Our kids were very very young at the time, and then you know, a day and a bit later, we arrive in Australia and tropical weather and it was just such a yeah. incredible culture culture shock and yeah that was the first time we'd been to australia first time we'd been to sydney and we just fell in love with the place immediately just absolutely loved it and then and then i think the next day we were in the studio doing pre-production <laughs> so it was pretty it was pretty <laughs> intense pretty intense but you know i was a younger yeah, guy then so it was i could handle it <laughs> Couldn't do that now. Diesel is um, sometimes pegged as being in that strummy period of Oil's music. I don't know if, if you've heard of the term the Campfire Trilogy being applied to Diesel and Dust and then Blue Sky Mining and then Earth and Sun and Moon together. No, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. While Diesel is often thought of as a strummy album, listening to it, you know, 33 years later, like this month, 33 years, mm. this album came wow. out. You can hear that 80s production sound in it too. And you're mentioning, you know, you're kind of coming from um, doing some industrial and then new wave albums. 
When you were producing Diesel and Dust, what thought did you and the band give to creating what is a, a contemporary sounding album at the time versus this very strummy rhythmic acoustic sound? And, mm. and did you approach like blending that outback experience that we know that the oils had just come off of with what was happening in rock music in, in 87? Yeah, it was probably more um, just the vibe than it being a sort of spoken intent. Um you know, as I already said, we were very committed to making the the songs as strong as possible. Um, mm -hmm. That maybe, in a bizarre way, lends itself to, you know, being able to be just strummed on an acoustic guitar and that the song would still sure. stand up. You know, and the way that, that Jim and Martin sit there with a pair of acoustic guitars in their hands, you know, um, playing together is quite a phenomenal thing that they do. The The way that they lock together is, you know, it's a sort of an indescribable thing really, but it's, mm -hmm. it's just a sound that um, is particularly special and, and, and kind of unique. There's not that many bands where, you know, you would have two, two different acoustic guitar players, sort of strumming together and the sort of, you know, I'd liken it to like in production, you would quite often say, okay, well, we want to double track the acoustic guitar. So the same person would do, you know, a second performance of that acoustic guitar. But of course they would perform it with pretty much the same nuances that the first track was. So they're sort of, you know, they're mirroring each other. They're sort of uh, not identical, but you know, the the same, but when those two guys mm -hmm. play sort of off each other, their sort of strums are in slightly different places and they accent differently and you get this incredible sort of both locked together but also nuancing um, off each, each other. So I think the first time I heard them do that in the studio on whatever song we've recorded acoustic guitars you know, um, for first, it was a pretty obvious that that was a great sound. And so there probably was, you know, something in my thinking of like, this is worth using this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> elsewhere. But I think the guys were already aware of the fact that, you know, and they had utilized that in on previous records. It wasn't sort of something sure. that was invented for that record. So it it wasn't it wasn't really designed to have a lot of strummy sort of tracks on it, but it certainly was designed to for the production to be contemporary, for us to be, mm -hmm. you know, doing more than just getting the songs down and recording the band playing live. We wanted to do something that had some intricacy to it, had some some interesting, unusual aspects to it to, to be unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, possibly, possibly uh, with the benefit of hindsight, there there's probably some things on the on the record that feel a little bit dated now, as is always the case. But then other things that you know that do stand the test of time and, and oh, work yeah, really well sure. and and um, make the record interesting. I think. Um, you know, as well as obviously it being great playing and great songs and great singing and all the other stuff. So, 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's generally the way that I produce uh, that I you know approach production is I, you know, I want to try and make records that you know at least in part sort of trying to be different, not just not just sort of sounding like everything else that's out there. I mean, obviously you can't do it with everything because there is so much music has been made, but I think we're I think I'm always looking for those elements that's going to make something a little bit more stand out and a bit more unique. Speaking of that, the album starts with a very iconic oils sound, those horns at the Mm. beginning of Beds Are Burning. Now, obviously, horns had been on the previous, on Red Sails and the Sunset. Mm. How'd that idea come about for using the horns in Beds? I think it was the band had wanted to put horns on it and they were they were good friends with the hunters and collectors who you know and it was those horn players that played on that record i think there was a band decision that that they would really like to try horns on it um and um you know there's a as you say there's those sort of punctuated stabs on the uh right at the beginning on the lead into the chorus and then there's the more mellow sort of legato lines that come in on the mm. um on the back end on the b the b chorus section so we sort of utilize them in those two different ways in the song but i think you know that uh that three chord sort of accent that sort of kind of a hook of the song that, that starts the song and the leads the choruses in was like you know we it was obvious that it wanted to be a powerful moment and so horns seemed like a a good choice along with the Obviously, the guitars and the, you know, and the drums and bass all punctuating it as well. And then there's, you know, other things that kind of get interwoven with that. Not not on the stabs themselves, but like right at the very beginning, um, there's um, like some reverse delays that that were generated from the beginning of the song, the first beat of the song, mm. and lay those so as they sort of swell up to the track coming in. So there was quite a few different little elements like that that were um, combined with those stabs to, to to make one of those sort of unique moments that would be ear-catching and immediately sort of grab you as like, oh, right, okay, I've never, you know, that, that sort of took me by surprise and kind of helped pull you into the song beds are burning is full of hooks and you know i don't want to call them tricks but all kinds of ideas did you have the idea like this really is going to be a hit this is going to be the lead single as you were building it do you think this really has that potential yes i i think so and actually um rob reminded me Sometime after that, I can't remember exactly, possibly when we were recording um, Capricornia, he reminded me of the fact that when when we put the bed track down of, of Beds Are Burning, um, when they were finished doing the take that would end up being the master bed track take, um, the bed track is like the sort of the, the, the core track that you do. So it's like drums, bass and the basic guitars. Um, that I uh, pressed the talkback button down and said to, said to the guys, uh, "Boys, you've just recorded your first number one, which is awesome. <laughs> which is a joke. It's um, it's a, a George Martin 
quote that he said that to the Beatles when they did their second session for recording Please Please Me. So it was a bit of an in-joke, so I thought they'd probably know it. And so it was so it was it was sort of tongue in cheek, but it was but it was serious, you know. As as often good jokes are, you know, they've got truth to them as well as being <laughs> from the Beatles world. But yeah, so um, yeah, I did I did really f- believe. I think from that actually from that first demo that I told you that that didn't even have verses on it at that point, just the chorus was just it was just such a strong chorus, and then. The guys worked really, really hard on those lyrics. I think I seem to remember us re-recording that lead vocal three or four times for the verses. Um, And all of that was generally because of improvements with the lyrics as the band sort of worked through, you know, the options and the possibilities and and, um, as other parts of the track got recorded you know new ideas came forward so there was quite a lot of work that went into getting those verses and the pre-choruses uh you know really um up to the uh, to serve that what we knew was you know a great chorus and not only a great chorus because of the commerciality because of the hookiness of it but also just what a great way to you know, really taking seriously what what had happened to the Aboriginal people, and you know, and to say, you know, how how can we just sort of carry on as normal, and you know, how can we sleep in our beds at night? How can we how can we dance and kind of pretend that everything's okay when when you know we're living this sort of um, you know this truth that. Uh, that uh, these people were just treated absolutely awfully, so yeah. it felt like a like it could be a really really important song as well from that point of view. You know, yeah, the way Peter sings those opening the the opening verse like out out where the river broke has so much conviction and also uh, character, and, and I guess that that came about because if if he was re-recording that with new improved lyrics each time uh he really owned that song i, I remember hearing it uh as a, a canadian kid actually just coming back from australia living there for one year returning to canada and then hearing that very distinctive australian voice uh that's when they became my favorite band right uh, at that moment so so there's something about something about that that's really interesting to hear that yeah uh, yeah i mean I, I, I mean the thing is with pete is he's always just got a hundred percent commitment to what he's singing and actually you know that that feeds into the writing process is, is that if there are lyrics there that he doesn't he doesn't feel they have to be changed you know, they could mm-hmm. still be like, you could still look at them and go, well, these are great lyrics. But if he doesn't feel it, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, he's, he's the mm. person that's got to deliver it with that conviction. And so, you know, I think once the lyrics for the song are right, he's always giving 100% and just, and has a way of, of it just feeling so 
connected with the you know the way that he performs it the way that he sings it feels 100% connected emotionally to the subject matter and to the to the spirit of the song and to you know and to the lyrical truth so yeah he's a he's a phenomenal singer from from that perspective you know he's just there's not there's lots of people that've got great voices but they don't necessarily have that ability to really make you believe it you know mm -hmm. but yeah that might on that song it, as i say because it was worked on so heavily that process might have helped him do that even more so even though i think it's probably true of every song that he sings that he's yeah that he's uh you know got that intensity to what he does and he's not losing it either <laughs> No. <laughs> Having just worked with them again, he's still just as good, if not better, than he's ever been. And, you know, when I saw them play live recently, you know, a couple of years ago when they went out for the first time in, God, how long was it? 17 years or something? 16 years? Yeah. It was just phenomenal. You know, they were just as a band, they were just still had the energy. I was going to say, were you at the Danforth show in Toronto a couple of years ago? Yeah, yeah, I went to the Danforth show, and then I went to the one that he did co-headlining with Matt Good at the um, at the Budweiser stage. Yeah, we missed that. I was looking forward to seeing both bands in Winnipeg. Unfortunately, they weren't able to to do that one, but we did catch them in Toronto the first yeah. time through, and then mm -hmm. down in Minneapolis later on. Phenomenal performances. Yeah. You guys are talking, you know, all serious stuff. And I've got a really silly question to ask you, Warren. I've read about this ticking clock sound in Beds Are Burning <laughs> was made by putting a metronome in the article that I read. Didn't specify who, just a musician's mouth. Robin doesn't believe it yeah, at all, how, of course. How can you fit a metronome <laughs> yeah. in someone's mouth? Warren, I need to hear the story from you. It's not quite true. There's, it, it, it's... Oh. Um, it's a little bit true, but not quite true. It is, <laughs> it is in fact a clock sample from, uh, I guess it would have been an Akai S900, which was with the sampler mm. that I had at the time. It is actually a clock sample. But what we did with it, with it was we put it through a tiny little um, uh, Radio Shack speaker that was probably a speaker that was designed for making like a hands-free kit for a telephone. It was a little plastic speaker anyway, no more than about three by three inches. And <laughs> so we put it through that. Now, I have used that speaker and done the mouth oh. thing and cupping, cupping <laughs> around it uh, for other, for more like wah-wah-y type sounds. But that... Yeah, sure. But not that, not in that case. I think what we did was, I think we put it inside a little trash can, a little metal okay. bin, and mic'd it up so it had a bit of a, a kind of an acoustic to it, you know, like a. So it wasn't so obvious that it was a sample, but it sort of sounded like it was in a room. Right. But no, that wasn't. I don't think it was a mouth. No. <laughs> so no grandfather clock in in Rob Hurst's mouth. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> And uh, interestingly, uh, as you guys know, the Matthew Good Band, it's the same clock sample on Time Bomb. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh. Treated differently, but it's the same sample. 
Wow. We're going to have a bunch of homework after this. Yeah, we've got to check this out. It's the hit clock sample. (laughs) (laughs) Instant hit. Yes. It's got the hit mojo, that clock sample. That's right. (laughs) I think you kind of covered the next question about knowing whether or not Beds was going to be a big hit. The only thing about that is that you... You know, I have those feelings many times when the song doesn't turn out to be a hit. So sure. there's no sort of guarantee. And, you know, it takes it takes a lot of different things to make to make a hit record. You know, it's, um, you know, obviously the song is probably the key point. But, you know, you can easily lose a song because the timing's not right, because the record company not behind it, because of, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of different factors. I don't think any of us really expected that the band were going to jump to something like 5 million records or something that that, that Diesel and Dust yeah. sold. I don't think any of us saw that coming, but it really did feel like, yeah, that song was going to do some good work for them. And if if international labels got behind them, there was a good chance that they could do well in other countries other than just Australia. Most of the songs um, from Diesel and Dust have a very strong 4-4 beat. There's a lot of kick-snare, kick-snare going on. But as we were already talking, there's a lot of rhythmic punctuation happening. You know, sometimes they're just one-off sounds and rhythms that Mm -hmm. add an accent, especially to the drums. I'm curious to know how you recorded Rob and and the rest of the band. You know, were there a lot of percussion overdubs? When you sat down to record these tracks, did Rob just sit down there and set and maintain the tempo? Was it like group effort? Were people recorded separately? How did that all happen? That is somewhat different for different songs. Um, and and this is probably true, actually, of pretty much every record that I've done with the guys. There would be a good proportion of the tracks, in excess of 50%, where the recording of a song starts with a bed track. As I mm-hmm. term I already used, and the, the yeah. bed track really is the band all playing together um, as a whole. So you know, two guitars, bass, and drums. Pete singing a guide vocal, and um, sometimes to a click. Don't know if I can remember off the top of my head whether every song would be to a click. I think probably on that album they were all to a click. Mm-hmm. So that would be the that would be the starting point of the song would be this bed track. Now, some of those guitars might get replaced. Obviously, vocals would be a guide and would be done later, and other things would be added uh, as overdubs to those songs. Um, but in terms of process, it was started with something that was akin to the band playing live. Mm-hmm. Um, now there was a another you know, batch of songs uh, on that record that didn't start like that, that would be, that would start from some form of programming. As I said, I mean, we're talking early, early days of the whole um, sampling and um, computer audio 
mm-hmm. uh, thing. Uh, you know, now now these things are a lot easier to do. But yeah, I was running um, like an Atari computer and uh, an Atari mm-hmm. hundred sampler and and you know, drum, we had drum machines and things like that. So we knew that, that we wanted to create some interesting sounds in the sort of rhythm so you know there's arctic world i think has um mm-hmm. uh is like almost like a sort of an anvil being struck sell my soul i think you're thinking of yeah yeah it's got that that clank yes you're right yeah uh yeah so there are these sorts of things that are possibly slightly coming from my experiences of making sort of industrial music mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's all sorts of, you know, on Bullroarer, of course, there are the Bullroarers that we got in time. I had the mic up in stereo, so they would do this sort of stereo thing. And then we time stretched them so as they would be in tempo with, you know, the, the, the beat, the right tempo for the track. Yeah. So there was quite a few of these sorts of things that we were doing where we wanted to not just have like a sort of um, a drummer playing the drums kind of rhythm. Mm-hmm. to do the songs it's sort of so those songs sort of started a bit more piecemeal and rob was always involved i mean he would play the the drum pads or something for mm-hmm. the samples and then sometimes we would record drums over the top of it real drums yeah. over the top of it or parts of the kit you know to sort of hybrid it some of those kick drums were sampled rather than it being a natural kick drum sound so yeah and different songs have have different, uh, yeah, different elements of that sort of way of recording. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I was listening to "Sell My Soul" this morning, I was thinking, I, I wonder if this was something that was just kind of like assembled um, and maybe played as a loop. And it sounds like perhaps that was one of the songs that you guys approached this way. I have to ask, you mentioned Atari. Uh, were you using an ST? Yes. Oh, that's too bad. See, I'm an Amiga guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could be wrong here, but I, I think the only option really back then was Cubase running on an Atari ST. I think so. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the Atari ST was the first mainstream computer with built-in MIDI ports, so it just became ubiquitous in the studio there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, yeah, S900 on that album, by the time we got to do Blue Sky Mining, was up to S1000. Um, yeah, Mac computers came along later. but um, it's, And all of these ideas that we're talking about of using these samples, it took so much time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like now, you know, you want something like that on a track, you just... 
you know, it takes a couple of minutes just to <laughs> find the thing in your sample library and pop it in Pro Tools. Back then, it was it was hard, you know, yeah. just getting things to sync up properly with the time code, and so it was always a bit of an adventure. But it kind of, you know, made you work in a different way, and you know, maybe maybe the fact that it was more difficult to do actually in, informed the particular way it ended up. You know, rather than it just being something that's easy and you just kind of chuck it down quickly, you know. The bass playing on Diesel and Dust is is of course super solid. But it's not as adventurous. I don't mean this like in a negative way. The bass playing always serves the song. and But for, for us bass nerds, I, I've been noticing that uh, Diesel and Dust, the, the playing's a little bit more safe from Giffo on that album. I, I don't think there was any specific intent like that. Yeah. It's probably just the difference in the two players, really, um, more than anything. Yeah, um, well, yeah, both wonderful players and both also actually fantastic voices as well. So, you know, they both have have contributed to the band in um, in the uh, backing vocal department as well as the style of bass playing. Yeah, I'm sorry, just to clarify, like Giffo had played uh, Ten Nine Eight, uh, Red Sails in the Sunset, and then came to Diesel and Dust. And I guess guess what I'm saying is that. He was a bit more adventurous in some of his bass lines on Red Sails and the Sunset, but not so much on Diesel. And I, I don't mean this as a slight or anything, but I'm, I'm specifically thinking about Giffo. Yeah, if, if he just felt like he was just slotted in, maybe he was going to leave. Well, I have yeah. a thought maybe, and, and you've yeah. mentioned this before, Robin. I think this was recorded at Albert's, right? And it was a relatively small studio. I think one of the things that you're often wondering about Robin is, you know, is it sometimes you get the bass player and the drum player working together and they're getting a groove going and sometimes they're not. Maybe maybe even the studio space had something to do with things. I don't think there was um, yeah, any intent to rein Giffo in or, you know, make his parts more fundamental. Not overly so. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's always a little bit of that. You know, you're obviously always trying to make sure with every overdub actually but yeah as we're talking about bass with bass making sure that it's not stepping on things that that you know are going to be recorded later you know that are going to going to come it's not stepping on vocal movements or things like that as you as you're sort of putting in you know i don't know maybe linking phrases or little licks here and there and what have you so but yeah albert's Albert's was tough. Um, it was the only studio that was available. I, I think Sydney was, you know, struggling at that point with having world-class f- facilities and mm. whatever was the number one studio was not available to us at that point. So we ended up in Albert's, <clears throat> which was owned by Vander and Young, the, uh, the ACDC management, Oh, okay. Uh, it was quite small, uh, as you say. Um, I can remember the first 
day we like put the drums up and was just very disappointed with the way the drums sounded in, in that room mm. so we were uh, immediately we got um the crew to go out and locate sort of um sheets of ply three quarter inch ply and even some corrugated aluminium you know roofing mm -hmm. stuff <laughs> anything like that that we could stand up against the walls and make and get something more lively for out of the room because it was a very very dead sounding room they had an ssl and they had the the two they had two of the what were the brand new sony digital 24 track uh multi-tracks they didn't have a, an analog multi-track so we had to work okay. on digital and those first Sony digital 24-track machines were, the A to Ds were nowhere near as good as A to Ds are now. They were quite harsh sounding. So everything on that record from an engineering point of view was a real struggle to try and get warmth and, and uh, personality from the recording just because of the limitations of the studio. But, you know, we did everything that we everything that we could uh it still niggles me a little bit to listen to the record because but i think i mean it's fine i think you know nobody yeah. else nobody else seems to notice but yeah it did it did uh, well <laughs> uh, yeah it did okay so um but it uh you know it's just one of those professional things that kind of irks you that you maybe didn't quite get to where you would hope to get sonically um Actually, having said that, though, um, when Bob Ludwig remastered that album for the uh, for the anniversary issue, um, yeah. he really got it back to kind of how I always imagined it sounding. Um, but um, yeah, so I think a lot of those tracks, Robin Giff were playing together when we did the bed tracks. Not all of them. Yeah. But so some of them, Giff would have, would have, you know, been doing his bass on his own and would have been a little bit more under the microscope. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then on other songs, you know, generally speaking, the faster tracks, you know, Dream World or something like that, him, him and Rob would be playing together and you know just grooving off of each other. Yeah. With guitar, guy guitars and drum and vocals as well. So. So yeah, I, I I wasn't really particularly aware of that, but it's interesting. I'll I'll have to investigate that myself a bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm pretty nerdy about my my bass lines and listen to them overly intensely. So <laughs> Robin thinks that he can hear flat wound strings. Um, was that what you were? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that probably is. Um, you know, and also it probably comes back as well to the decision to make a real songs based record even though obviously there you know are production tricks and there are you know playing on the record that's you know really strong playing um <clears throat> i think we were also trying to just make sure that nothing got in the way of the song you know yeah mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about the Dead Heart. I know it, it came out as as a twelve inch single, um, 
well before the album version came out, and I think the two are slightly different. Um, yet the sound and the arrangement and the vibe fits in so well with the album. Did you have any sort of involvement with the Dead Heart or preparing it for, like taking the single version and preparing it for the album version? No, no, they had, they had recorded that track prior to, and released the track actually mm-hmm. prior to us even starting, I think they... Yeah. So they recorded that song themselves, producing themselves. Nick did the mix of it. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was already existing, so we knew it was going to be on the record. So yeah. um, I don't know if that would necessarily have changed anything about the way that we approached the album. But Yeah, well, um, it does fit in really well. Yeah. So maybe that's just kind of where the, the band was at at that period of time. Exactly. Yeah, and, and perhaps uh, maybe not deliberately, it got used as a bit of a template for the rest of the album. Like, are you thinking lyrically and thematically? Uh, and, and, yeah, and even uh, the the sound of it. I don't think that I don't think that's necessarily true. No? Okay. Uh, it, from a writing point of view, it might have been a template or or just a, an indication of where things were going. But sonically, no, it wasn't. Okay. Play, we didn't play that song in the studio, sort of for, for reference. Okay. You know, we weren't sort of getting ourselves tied up in knots, thinking, "Oh my God, we've got to make oh, yeah. sure." Everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I notice, Warren, on the liner notes that uh, one of your credits. Mm-hmm is for additional keyboards. Yes. We've got this thing for finding out when producers are playing on the album. <laughs> I'm wondering, do you recall what songs you may have played on and, and what the circumstances may have been that wouldn't allow Jim or Jim decided that he was going to just take a break from a, a particular part or something like that? I think partially it's because because we were doing some of the stuff that I mentioned, you know, that where we were using programmed things. Okay, sure. Drum machines, samples, you know, uh, synths that maybe we were running off of uh, some kind of sequencer or something. Mm-hmm. I would tend to do those because it's just easier that you're there and, yeah. you know, you're just sort of like hitting the computer and hitting the keyboard so i think i think wherever i think wherever it sounds like somebody really playing a part it would be jim mm-hmm. i mean jim jim's a, a phenomenal keyboard player actually and certainly way way better keyboard player than i am so if it was anything that was actually real playing it would be him it would more just be me you know doing like things that were sequences or sure. odd little bits and pieces i think we did like for I'll give you an example. Um, as I'm about to start explaining this, I can't for the life of me think why we did this. <laughs> but in Beza Burning, in the B chorus, there's a 12-string guitar part that comes in. Okay. It sort of goes down, 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 down. So it comes in after the over the, the time has come mm-hmm. to say fair's fair, that section there. And what we ended up doing was, rather than just record a 12-string electric guitar doing it, we actually sampled all the notes from a 12-string and then played it on a keyboard. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes, I think. <laughs> and as I say, why did we not just play it on a guitar? I don't know. But I think at the at the time, my idea was that I wanted it to be just super smooth and and for every note to be sure. identical. Not the same note, but sound the same. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so something like that, I would I would do that. You know, because I was just in charge of the sampler and the stuff. So yeah, so something like that would be would be me. I do know that now when they do that song live, Jim plays that part and doesn't bother with the song. Oh. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because Martin Rotzi's so uh, quiet and unassuming, we specifically have been asking about his contribution to the album. What what does he bring? Uh, both in his playing and also just in in his presence. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting to have a have a band where you've got two guitar players that are so strong. You know, it's really not you know lead and rhythm going on with those guys. You know, his his contribution is very significant actually, and I, I think it's. Like one of the things is the style of the way that they both play. Martin, Martin's sort of quite urgent with the way that he plays. He's he's sort of very much driving, you know, up on top of the track, sort of driving it. It does tend to um, serve the things like the riffs and stuff like that, or rhythmical, you know, uh, uh, chord patterns. But he's very, he's got a style that's very sort of driving. Jim's style is more sort of, he kind of floats and weaves in and out of things. So they, they both have a very different approach. It's, it's probably a good, it's probably pretty much 50 50 in terms of who plays what guitar wise between those two guys. It's it, Martin's. Martin's sounds tend to be brighter. So, I mean, often he's playing the Strat, bright guitars, sort of quite, quite cutting. Um, Jim's more sort of a, goes for warmer kind of tones, generally speaking. Yeah, it's just, it ends up being just, I mean, most of the time when they're writing a song, they pretty much figure out between the two of them what they're going to play what each person is going to play but there might be occasions in the studio where we're where we're yeah inventing a new part to go on something or something like that and it's just like who started is gonna 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 do this best you know yeah, yeah. oh yeah well, martin will be better for this let's you know martin picks up the guitar and and does it well there's never any sort of ego any fighting between them at all there's just a sort of a mutual recognition that each has his own strengths and um you know for the sake of recording you you try and get the person that's going to fit that part the best if you know what i mean yeah so that's and actually martin tends to always be kind of a little bit ahead of jim in terms of timing so for whatever reason in my mind it sounds better if the guitar that's a little bit ahead is over on the left to the guitar that's a little bit behind. So I generally speaking pan Martin to the left and Jim to the right, unless there's, unless there's some other overriding factor. But could you 
you could say that's probably 80% of the time that's the way it, it works is I, <laughs> I I prefer yeah. the sound of Martin coming up on the left speaker sort of leading the track sort of you know being being sort of right up on the beat and sort of pushing the track along and because I mixed drummer perspective yeah. as well generally speaking sort of the hi-hats normally to the left as well so it sort of it sort of joins okay. the hi-hat a little bit on the left. <laughs> I'm getting really geeky nice. and nerdy now, but there you go. No, that's good to know. Some some folks just don't care where the sound goes no. in the mix, right? And other and people fine. know specifically where they want. But I care. Yeah, you yeah, care. Yes, that's it's good. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I care too. I want my Tom Phils to go from left to right. Other people, not so much, but that's what I would prefer. <laughs> Warren, I'm wondering if your personal CD copy of Diesel and Dust ends with Sometimes or Gun Barrel Highway. And that's kind of a cheeky way of asking about how you help a band to assemble an album because um, <laughs> Gun Barrel was left off of the vinyl version, I think, of, yes. of all the albums. But on the Australian CD release, it ends with gun barrel, and I think most of the international releases, no gun barrel. It's sometimes, and that's it. But generally speaking, how do you help a band assemble um, a play order in an album? It just ends up being just, uh, you know, you're another voice in the, in the um, discussion. Um, you know, so uh, in that particular example with the oils, you know, five members of the band, and there's me. And we throw ideas around and um, I'm not, you know, I'm not entirely sure why there was a need to drop one of the songs. It probably has something to do with the vinyl length. Yeah. And not wanting to have that extra track to make sure that the cut of the vinyl was good. I think from my perspective, probably Gun Barrel and sometimes probably the weakest two songs on the record. Ooh. So if, if you were gonna if you were gonna lose a song, uh, it would be one of those two. Um I think actually at the time some sometimes was probably my least favourite track. Oh wow. Yeah, and, um, yeah. I love sometimes. <laughs> I think it's just a fantastic way to end the album. I've come round <laughs> I, I, at the time I'm saying, but now I sort of realize its strength. Yeah. I think it's just a bit too straightforward for me. That's why I was not really 100% mm. behind it to begin with, but obviously it's a song that they play live a fair bit and it sounds great live and I don't think they play Gun Barrel Highway too often, so That's that right. might mean something. But yeah, I think it probably would have had something to do with having one less track so as the vinyl cut was good. Mm. I guess I should explain that a little bit. If you have too much time length on vinyl, the grooves start to... You have to cut the grooves smaller, which makes a quieter pressing. So you tend to try and kind of limit it to around, you know, 20 to 22 minutes aside on on vinyl to get a good cup. But yeah, the the sequencing overall is generally speaking something that I'm involved with. I'll, I'll throw ideas in and and uh some form of consensus of, you know, ends up developing just sort of naturally as, you know, as sort of people 
sort of put their vote in. Um, I think actually when we were sequencing that record, the discussion was a lot more about actually how to start the record. I think there was quite a lot of uh, resistance towards the idea about starting with Beds of Burning, that there was possibly a more subtle way really? to begin the record than just coming out with your big uh, track that was going to be the single. But in the end, it was just like... Let's just do the obvious. Is what you know. Let's not make, let's not overthink this, and yeah. let's um, let's let's just lead with our strongest foot, and and um, and then and then take it from there. And there was a couple of other things that are a bit sort of segued on the record as well, um, which so those tracks kind of needed to go together to make that work. We did more of that actually on blue sky mining but there is a little bit of that of like tracks that definitely needed to you know we're, we're almost designed to lead from one to the other so that was also you know something that was started to be discussed quite early on in the process of recording a little bit more about gun barrel it it really is a bit of an enigma for us here in canada where it didn't appear on the final or on the cd but it did appear on the B side of one of the single, like the the forty five vinyl forty five. Interesting. Now, Gun Barrel was that recorded in the same sessions as all the rest of the album? Oh yeah. Or was there anything separate? Yeah, they were all recorded together. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it was not an afterthought as a song. Um, I did. I actually did sequence the, the the album. I mean, it wasn't all my choice. I did, Various people, you know, contributed to the actual order, um, but I actually did the sequencing myself back in the UK. Um, mm. In fact, what happened was we we basically finished the whole record in in Australia, mixing and everything, and then I went back to the UK, and I think. There was a couple of tracks where we thought maybe the mix could be stronger, so I did a remix of those. Can't remember exactly what it was, but I think there might have been a couple of mixes that were done in, in the UK. And then I edited it all on a Sony digital system to do the crossfade bits and to sequence the whole record. And then it went to mastering in in the UK as well. I think Tim Young did the original mastering on that record. I think because uh, Gun Barrel does sound different uh, than the other songs on the album to me. Uh, choice of keyboards, uh, for example. And I, I just want to say back to the bass thing. The most exciting bass playing on the whole album is Gun Barrel Highway. Giffo really gets to go <laughs> go to town. Uh, in in several sections on that song, so so it's just interesting. To interesting, me. but yeah, no, it wasn't record. It wasn't recorded separately. It wasn't. It wasn't a different session. Yeah. it was. It was just in with everything. But as I say, I think you know. I mean, for me now, it's that track would be the. I think the weakest track on the record. Personally, um, I've come around to sometimes. Yeah. Sometime, even though at the time I wasn't particularly a fan of that song, but. But yeah. Looking back 33 years ago, 
at the best Australian album of all time, Diesel and Dust. Obviously, it's something that you must be immensely proud of. But you came back and you produced Blue Sky Mining and then Redneck and Capricornian. And now you've been working with the band on the Macarata Project. And, and what was the name of, of that new full-length album again? <laughs> no? I don't think they have a title yet. I'm, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just joking around there. Yeah. But was there something like you kept on coming back and the band kept on, on coming back? What was the feeling going back or at least finishing this album and, and wanting... and and deciding, you know, are we going to work together again? Were there, were there things that you figured that, oh, you know what, we can, we can do even better than, than Diesel and Dust. Let's get back together and do another album. What keeps you coming back to work with Mineta Oil? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. The, well, the, yeah, the sort of, <clears throat> the, the, the different sort of dynamics really. I mean, the Blue Sky Mining obviously is, you know, quite close to Diesel and Dust. It was their next record. Uh, it, there, there was a, a certain amount of of logic of like, okay, well, we've just done this record. It's done very well. You know, we've got something good mm-hmm. going on here. So let's let's do more. That was very much almost sort of, uh, I guess, a dynamic of just this makes sense just for us to carry carry on. Mm-hmm. You know, and work together again, and of course, I mean, you know, not not every artist you work with works with you again, but some do. Um, so it was, you know, and it's always it's always nice when you work with a band for them. You know, when they ask you to to come back, you know, it shows that they've they were happy with what you had to contribute, and um, sure. you know, when it's when you feel the same as well about how much you enjoyed working with that artist and how you know the their creativity really sort of fitted with with your own way of working that the the the, the, the sort of you know enough common ground for it to be a very um is is something about it i mean and i think this is really you know why i love making records so much is just there's something about that dynamic when you get a bunch of creative people that are sort of like-minded you find that sort of, you know, that group of people, that energy that gets created in the way that ideas just flow. And, you know, it's so often quite difficult to pick out, like, who who came up with that idea? You know, like, somebody came up with an mm-hmm. idea, but then everybody else sort of gets involved with it and uh, you work away and then you end up with this thing and you don't really know quite how you got there or whose idea it was but everybody in the room is sort of just fed off of this energy that um, that happens so I mean that's it's, it's, that's um, an incredibly enjoyable experience and it's particularly enjoyable when you find you know a band like Midnight Oil that, that you you know, are on the same page with um, musically in many other ways as well, um, you know, about what they're trying to say, what they're trying to do, what they stand for. So really that was the story of, of, of Blue Sky Mining, of it, just, of it just really feeling like, yeah, why would you not? Why would we not do another record? It's, it's, it's gone very, very well. Then after that, they went back and worked with Nick again, and um you know on a sun and moon and then they did an album with malcolm Byrne and a few other bits and pieces 
And then when we came back to Redneck Wonderland, that was an album that they actually started with a young up-and-coming Australian producer called Magoo. Yeah. And um, they'd got, you know, maybe 40, 50% into recording that record and it was not quite working out for them. So they came back to me to take those recordings that they'd already done and try and get them more into how they wanted them to be. Some of them we actually ended up completely re-recording and some of them hmm. were sort of working from what had already been recorded. So so that experience was different, but that then led us back into this sort of pattern of like, no, this is good. This is really good the way we work together. And so by the time we get to Capricornia, which is, you know, 20 years later, we were... um you know, back, back sort of with the same dynamic. And I, I really felt that that dynamic was, was also the same, you know, on the recent stuff that we've re recorded mm -hmm. end of last year. It was just like, even though I hadn't worked with them at that point, so Capricornia was re recorded in 2001, you know, up to 2019, 18 years, we hadn't been in the studio together. But, you know, within 10 minutes, it just felt like <laughs> we'd never been away, you know. Right on. That's good news. Yeah, it's just, they're just, um, you know, and there's just, they're just an exceptional bunch of human beings for a start. They're all mm. super intelligent yeah, great senses of humor going around and just a just a real great sort of energy to to really try and you know push ourselves to do to do good work you know and i think that that just speaks volumes to me and is you know when i find people like that you know i want to just i want i want to keep them in my life you know both as friends and also as as people to collaborate with on records it's just it's it's the best it's the best thing thank you very much warren for spending some time with us this afternoon to talk about diesel and dust the greatest australian album <laughs> of all time you know <laughs> I don't think anybody could really argue that this is probably the oil's most important record. You know, it got them out in front of the world and, and it is such a fantastic album. Good job, sir. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> well, thank you. Very, thank you very much, guys. Yeah, you're welcome. You're going to come back and talk to us again about Blue Sky Mining? Yep. Excellent. Yeah, I look forward to it. Well, thank you very much. And with that, it's time, I guess, to put Diesel and Dust back in the album sleeve. But we're going to say good night until next time when we will be listening to Blue Sky Mining and talking to Mr. Warren Livesey about that on Comfortable Place on the Couch, a Midnight Oil podcast. Corrections, comments, hate mail questions for your new favorite midnight oil producer you can send us an email to our new podcast email address oilscouch at gmail.com visit darrenfolds.com slash podcasts for any show notes we might have tweet us on the tweeter at darrenfolds or at whatever robin's twitter is 
8-bit show and tell. So for Robin Harbin, I'm Darren Folds. Good night. Good night. All right. Take care.